welcome to Sentient Planet. indigenous story, which may be more than 14,000 years old. It tells of how we played bone games against the animals to see who the hunters would be and who the hunted. Well, people won, but only by the mercy of the animals. And now we have to honor that by always acknowledging their sacrifice and, and holding their gift sacred to us and upholding the covenant to protect and steward the earth. Rena Priest is an award-winning poet and writer, a National Geographic explorer, and a member of the Lummi Nation in the state of Washington. In April, she was also named the state's Poet Laureate. She is the first Indigenous poet to hold this prestigious position. In addition to two collections of poetry, Rena has published a series of essays on Lactamish relationships to marine life and waterways. Today, we discuss Rena's calling to write about Tokatai, the southern resident orca held captive at the Miami Seaquarium for the past 50 years. Rena shares some of the personal journey she undertook to understand and convey Tokatai's experience, and how this deepened her indigenous roots and connections to the Earth's living beings. Rena also honours us with indigenous storytelling and worldviews about the southern resident orca whom the Lummi consider their relatives under the sea. Rena, welcome to Sentient Planet, and thanks so much for joining us today. Glad to be here. You know, I first heard about you when I came across your beautiful essay about Tokatai, and the Southern Resident Orca in Hakai magazine recently. Can you share with us how you researched and eventually came to write that piece? Sure. Well, um, the piece that you're talking about originally appeared in High Country News in the April 2020 issue. And I wrote that, um, well, I was approached by the strategic analyst from Lummi's Sovereignty and Treaty Protection Office and he asked me to apply for funding from the National Geographic Society. And I was gonna use it to write about the tribe's efforts to repatriate a Southern resident killer whale from a marine park in Florida. So far, those efforts haven't been successful, but that's ongoing and we're hoping that there will be development soon. She's been there for over 50 years now, uh, living in a tank under conditions that would to us be the equivalent of living in a low ceilinged elevator <laughs> with whales looking in and forcing us to do a little dance several times a day in order to be fed. So hopefully there'll be some movement on her situation soon. Anyway, initially I knew nothing about her and I was really reluctant to get involved just because there's you know, a lot of politics with these kinds of things sometimes in my tribal community. So I said no twice, actually, to the STPO request. But the more I learned about her, the more I felt for her situation. 
And so when I was asked a third time, I thought, okay, I'm going to do this. And I went ahead and applied for the funding. And then, you know, there was kind of the usual waiting and I was hopeful, but didn't really know what my chances were. So when uh, word came through that I got the funding, I was pretty much overjoyed to be able to tell this story. And so the rest of it was just kind of, you know, talking to people and doing research and getting to know the whole story. And over the course of my year-long project, I just learned a ton about the amazing intelligence and the nature of these beautiful beings. So by the time I wrote the piece for High Country, I was pretty much immersed in this world that just a year before I I had almost no knowledge of. (laughs) It was really eventful and very powerful year. So Tokatai has been living in a tank for an astonishing 50 years in the Miami Sea Aquarium, as you mentioned. Indeed, it's my understanding that she's the last surviving orca from the captures that occurred in the Salish Sea off Washington State in the 60s and 70s. As part of your research for that essay, you took a trip to Miami to see Tokatai yourself, I assume so that you could bear witness to her living conditions. Can you tell us about that personal encounter and what you saw down there? Yeah, so I felt like um, it was going to be really important right away to see what her living situation was and to go experience that for myself and just try to understand what her life is. And um, it was really hard to buy a ticket to go inside knowing that I was contributing to the problem that was keeping her there. But I really also hope that sharing my perspective, sharing what I saw there would raise awareness of what her life is like. So one thing that struck me as really tragic is the way that the young people who work there, they're just trained to project an atmosphere of everything being so hunky-dory and all around them there's this depressed sea life. It's just withering in display tanks. And the show itself was really sad. It was hideous and horrible. I call it imitation music because it's not really music. It's just kind of like noise. And it was played at loud volumes throughout the show while Tokotai was performing. And then, you know, kind of over the top of that is this shrill this trainer just shouting propaganda about how her life is so great in the tank because the Southern residents are starving and being poisoned by the pollution in the Salish Sea and all this. And then in the meantime, there's images of wild orcas playing on a jumbotron in the background. Images of the Salish Sea and these wild orcas. And then you have Tokatai in this tiny little tank. And it's just really, really sad. It made me very heartsick. And it was really sad to know that activists have been working so hard to have the protections of the Endangered Species Act extended to Tokatai and other animals in captivity, only to have that be the justification for keeping her there. So the Endangered Species Act says that it's illegal to cause harm or distress to these endangered species, and that moving her back to the Salish Sea would cause her harm and so that they can't do that. And so it's just like, oh, in the meantime, you know, I read this article about there's this man who's been working with and around the Southern resident population for, gosh, probably 30 or 40 years, a long time. Um, His name is Ken Balcom. And he gave an interview recently about 
the fact that he's going to have to bear witness to these animals that he's loved so much and has spent his life, you know, observing. He's going to have to watch their extinction, essentially, because there, you know, there are not enough breeding females. And then in the meantime, here's this female who would have been the matriarch of her pod. Tokatai's mother is the matriarch of L-Pod. And she's just been in captivity for over 50 years now. And think of all the whale babies that weren't born because of where she's at. And then all of the other whales that died during capture or died in captivity that weren't able to perpetuate their line and contribute to the survival of their species. It's just really kind of horrifying when you really get down to it. Right. So it's the horrifying situation with her personal captivity. And then, as you just pointed out, and I'm not sure that I've thought so much about that before, it's also stolen from her family the ability for a line of reproduction. When you were in Miami visiting with Tokatai, did you get a sense of whether she understands her situation? I mean, these are very, very intelligent animals. I do. I think she knows what happened to her. I think she, you know, she knows that it was wrong. And I think she copes with it through just immense emotional and intellectual strength. She actually spent her first 10 years in the tank with another male Southern resident killer whale called Hugo. And she was meant to breed with him. And they successfully copulated, but they never actually conceived. And Hugo died of a brain injury from repeatedly bashing his head against the side of the tank. And I think that he was trying to find a way out for both of them. And I think she must have just immense strength to endure that situation. How long ago was that, Rena, that Hugo died? He died in 1980. So there were 10 years together in the tank. So she's been alone um, ever since then. Or I guess maybe there's been a couple of dolphins with her, but she hasn't had the company of her own kin since 1980. Yep, that's right. So just her and some some dolphins. And of course, the trainers. when you were down there, you sang to Tokatai. Uh, That just seems like such a very intimate thing to do. How did it feel to sing to her? And can you tell us what you sang to her? Oh, well, I sang her a song that I sometimes just sing to myself for strength or, you know, when I'm hurting, or sometimes I also sing it when I'm alone and I'm really happy because it's sunny and, and my heart just wants to sing. So I associate it with traveling and of letting my soul travel. So it it sounds maybe a little woo-woo, but I think in a way it's also very scientific. I don't know. Um, I just sang to her under my breath and she came right up to the edge of the tank just below me and she was vocalizing back. And it just felt like this real uh, moment of connection. It was just, it, it was really beautiful, but it was also very strange to be sharing that with her in such an awful setting and I just feel like it speaks to her presence that something so good can be felt amid such 
hideous surroundings. It's just, it felt wrong for her to be there. And like, to see her there, it just kind of feels like the only place beautiful enough to be worthy of her is really the Salish Sea. You write that Tokatai still sings her family song. How do we know this? What does it mean for her to sing the song of her family? So there are vocalizations particular to each pod and also to certain activities, like when, for example, they're fishing and they catch one, there's like a celebratory vocalization and some of the vocalizations are shared. So they're matrilineal. And there was a 2014 study that showed that L-Pod, Toki's pod, has a greater incidence of shared vocalizations within matrilines than between matrilines. So their dialects are more distinct than J and K pods. And the dialect comes from the matriarch. The L-Pod dialect comes from Ocean Sun, who also happens to be Toki's mother. So what this means to me is that if we put her back into the Salish Sea, there's a strong likelihood that she'd be heard and that she'd be recognized. As someone whose chosen life path is poetry, (laughs) I believe strongly in the ability of sound and sense to create deep and powerful emotional reactions. I think using the sound and sense of her pod ties her to a feeling of home, the same way the sound of my mother's voice ties me to her or the way to say words in my ancestral language ties me to my ancestors. So... And perhaps that's part of the answer to the question of how she has survived so long. Perhaps that's what's given her some strength and resilience over all these decades. Yeah, I I think so. In your essay, your descriptions of the Miami Seaquarium really show that it's a theme park in decline. And something about what you saw down there with that decline, which you hinted at at the top of this interview, it just made me incredibly sad when I read about it. I mean, here's this incredible intelligent sea mammal as we've been talking about. By right, she should be living with her family, free and wild in the Salish Sea, and living out the rest of her natural life there. But she's stuck in this tiny tank instead. She's forced to perform. And on top of that, she no longer seems to attract the number of visitors that she did perhaps in the heyday of this kind of so-called entertainment. I mean, maybe that's a good sign because fewer people find entertainment in animal captivity, but I'm just grappling with the whole situation. Oh yeah, it feels so wrong to just, well, okay, so the first experience you have on entering is the smell of shrimp rotting in the flamingo pool, right? So like you walk in, And then there's immediately the scent of death and decomposition. And that theme is just, it feels like it's carried throughout the park. You know, there's cracked concrete and these animals are all just so despondent and they're languishing in their enclosures and the windows are there so that we can walk through and enjoy this. And I'm thinking, you know, how is this enjoyable to watch the suffering of these beings, right? Because The views are all of animals for whom life has gone terribly, terribly wrong. And they all have these instincts and urges that have evolved over long spans of time. Orcas, for example, they've been around for 11 million years. 
So they have these instincts and these urges to live in a certain way. And, you know, Toki is living in a way that is very contrary to all of that. So in nature, an orca can dive to depths of several hundred feet and swim up to 40 miles a day on average. So they're extremely fast and extremely powerful creatures. And they've evolved to chase fish and enjoy the open sea. And here's this beautiful orca in a tank that's not even as deep as she is long. It's just, I can't even comprehend how it's allowed to happen, you know. I've heard people get really upset about keeping a golden retriever in an apartment, for example, because, you know, they've just evolved to retrieve and and it's like, okay, but (laughs) we have these theme parks where these whales, I think it's just too huge to fathom or, you know, the awareness is just not out there about the whole reality of the situation. And I feel like it also gets a bad rap, you know, people who talk about these things, it's like, oh, these save the whales people, you know, but it's like, like from the outside, I suppose you could say that, but when you learn about it, it's just like, well, heck yeah, let's save the whales, let's bring Toki home, you know, let's (laughs) do whatever we can. Yeah, and you wonder how people can walk through a theme park like that and not see what you see. I mean, it's pretty clear. Mm -hmm. I mean, for starters, you've got all these animals who live in latitudes that are much further north than Florida. Um, So I can only imagine that's adding to their suffering being in that kind of tropical climate. They're clearly unhappy. It's puzzling that people can walk through and not not see the suffering. Yeah, that was really, that was something that really struck me. You mentioned that a year before you started work on what would become this beautiful essay, you really didn't have a strong personal connection to the Southern resident orca, even though you are a part of the Lummi or the Lakdamish people. So I'm just curious about what you learned or relearned about the historical connection between the orca or blackfish and your own ancestral heritage. Yeah, so I feel like... um... It was less what I learned about my ancestral heritage as much as what I learned about how how to explain the connection between people and the natural world more effectively to non-tribal people and just people who don't have that worldview, right? I just, I feel like it's what's really necessary to heal the relationship between nature and mainstream culture is to heal the mainstream worldview by sharing Indigenous stories. Stories, you know, they connect us deeply to our belief systems, right? And Indigenous stories, they connect the people to the orga and the rest of the planet in my tribal culture. So an example of a story that influences mainstream society is that in Christianity, which is really only a few thousand years old, the Genesis story tells of our dominion over all creatures and an expulsion from the Garden of Eden, right? So it's an alienation from nature and paradise together with the curse of toil. And there's an indigenous story of Sahal, which may be more than 14,000 years old. It tells of how we played bone games against the animals to see who the hunters would be and who the hunted. Well, people won, but only by the mercy of the animals. And now we have to honor that 
by always acknowledging their sacrifice and, and holding it sacred, holding their gift sacred to us and upholding the covenant to protect and steward the earth. But that's the animals. And then on the other hand, the killer whales, they're people, the Kualmachan, they're, they're people under the sea and they're our relatives. So there's a totem pole at Deception Pass that tells the story of the maiden of Deception Pass. Uh, she was very beautiful and drew the attention of the people of, under the sea. And so uh, their head man came to meet with the maiden's parents on behalf of his son who wanted her as his bride. But the girl, she was kind of afraid to move away from her people. And, you know, she was curious about the son and, and being married, but she just didn't want to move away. And so she told her parents to say no. And they said no. And the people under the sea, they said, okay, they were offended. <laughs> and they went back and then they no longer shared the gifts of the sea with the people of the land. And so the land people began to starve and the girl thought, well, you know, why am I so afraid of this? And so she agreed to the union on the condition that she could return home for visits. So she went to live with the people under the sea and eventually she became very happy in her life there and no longer felt the need to come back. And the covenant between the people of the land and the people of the sea was upheld. So now here we are and the gifts of the sea are disappearing again. And this means to me that we violated the spirit of reciprocity that ties us together with the people under the sea and that all the life on this planet, that we're not between tribes. So a Samish woman could easily end up marrying into Lummi and becoming a matriarch or in more recent history, tribes were grouped together on reservations and just came to share a culture and stories from within families and existing communities. Thank you. That's a beautiful story and I really appreciate you sharing it with us. So the, the Maiden of Deception Pass is, would it be correct to say it's a key story that describes that relationship between the Lummi and the Southern residents? Um, I would say so. The story that our late chief, he told a similar story. It was slightly different, but many of the themes were the same. His version, I think, had a young man. He married a beautiful woman and went to live under the sea with her and continued to send gifts to his elders. Has the meaning of that story or the significance of that story in your personal life changed since you've been on this journey to understand Tokatai's situation and the Southern residents in general? Well, I don't know that it's changed. It's, it's kind of come more to the forefront of my attention, but it's always sort of been there. I was young. Actually, it's funny because um, I sought out the totem pole at Rosario Park at the Deception Pass State Park. I went looking for it again because as a child, I went there with my grandmother and, you know, I heard the story and everything. And so, but it's, it hasn't really been a big part of my consciousness. And then when I heard our late chief talk about it again, it rang a bell, but it, there, there were changes there. It was different than the story that I remembered. What happens to them happens to us. They're just like us. They're, they're people under the water. They have a society, they have social structures. They have love for their families. So that kind of really came home to me over the course of studying them. 
Given what you're describing and the heartfelt sense that the Southern residents are the Lummi's kin, these are literally, there's a relationship there that is very significant. It goes back a long time. It must be especially painful. I mean, I know it's painful for me as a non-Indigenous person to see what's happening to Tokotai and the Southern residents. I guess we, we don't need to get into comparing the depths of pain here that you or me may feel. It's just... I can only imagine that if that's the connection between the tribe and the orca and it's been there forever, it must be so hard to witness what's happening to her and the decline of the southern residents. And I know there are lots of people in the Lummi Nation who are working on behalf of those animals and to bring Tokatai home. Yeah, so that effort I know is ongoing, but you know, I don't really know the details about what they're trying to do now to bring her home. But for me, I'm thinking more of trying to tell more stories about salmon, right? I just hate it that she can't come home because her people are starving, right? But they're going hungry in the Salish Sea, that, that that's one of the justifications for not letting her come home. So that's inspiring me to try to tell stories to make people love salmon enough to work harder and make sacrifices in order to bring them back. Yeah, because those Chinook salmon are the primary food source, of course, for those three pods. We have lots of other choices of things that we can eat for sure. And I don't think that many people understand. You're talking about a time in the past when there were literally millions of Chinook salmon that were available to the orca and to the people. And now we're talking about, you know, a few tens of thousands that come through each year. It's just such a radical decline. And maybe if more people grasped that... It wouldn't seem like such a controversial idea. It may seem like common sense. Right, exactly. And I just feel like a lot of, I mean, the poem that I read, it's somewhat out of frustration about, you know, trying to be coming from a place of not causing controversy or speaking controversially or, you know, too much too fast or, you know, these kinds of things. It just made me think, you know, if only tribal people had the run of the Western Hemisphere and didn't have to compete with people who've been introduced into this ecosystem from elsewhere, would our numbers bounce back? I think, you know, we'd probably do pretty good. And I think it's the same for the salmon, so. Fair comment. So how optimistic are you, I guess, about the situation just overall for the Southern residents? Can you imagine a day when they're coming back or do you think we're past the point of no return? Well, I feel like nature is so resilient. It's shockingly resilient and, you know, so intelligent. And I feel like if we leave it alone, what could happen? You know, could it (laughs) figure itself out, you know, if it's just not interfered with? And I feel like we would have to do a lot to minimize our impact, to mitigate the damage that we've done throughout the last hundred years or so longer actually, but I'm hopeful. I I don't think that I'm quite ready to just give up on them and say, oh, well, (laughs) you know, we tried, (laughs) but I, I feel like we have to do everything that we can. So long as they're alive, there's a possibility of recovery. Yes. And same for the salmon, you know, wild salmon. I think that we could do a lot fairly easily. We just, 
you know, made the decision to do it. If we changed our values from money to being able to live in a healthy, sustainable world, like if that were worth money, I think that we could make the hard decisions, you know, and I think it is worth money. I think that that's really what it's going to take for people to see in order to be able to make these changes. Yeah, and depending on how you slice it and how you approach the whole idea of profit and making a living, you're really talking about one industry versus another. You've got salmon and fishing, and then you've got tourism and whale watching. There's all sorts of competing interests, which is more valuable. And then how do you measure value in the first place? These are all just questions that as a society, I think we need to go deeper with if we're going to survive ourselves. Because those orca, they're awfully high on the food chain and as they go so do we perhaps that's what the story you shared with us is getting at the reciprocity between the life in the sea and the life on the land that those go hand in hand definitely how are you personally processing what you've learned and your encounter with tokatai how is that experience guiding the next steps in your life well I feel like what I learned in the year that I was following this story, it has changed my work quite a lot. I think I'm processing it through, well, this it's kind of funny because I haven't written as much poetry as I'm used to kind of just doing regularly. Uh, I've written more nonfiction and all of that has been very interesting for me and I've enjoyed it quite a lot. But lately I've started to feel a strong pull back towards writing poetry and particularly poetry that includes these themes around uh, like a vanishing landscape, you know, or a vanishing way of life and trying to hang on to it and trying to tell other people about its value I read something about that there's like 7,000 languages that are going to go extinct within a certain near term time frame and how horrifying that is because, you know, I'm trying, I'm trying so hard to learn what I can from my tribal language and um, the concepts within that are just so beautiful and I, just, I feel like it connects me to an understanding of the world that that English can't, it just doesn't, there's no way for. There's no equivalency. Yeah. 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 There's no equivalency. And it, it connects me to like a way of understanding the world and a way of living that is, you know, I don't even know if we can have that concept anymore. Right. And it's just beautiful to look back, but it's also heartbreaking. It's really, really hard to learn about these things. And I was very shy and reluctant to do it because I think it's, it's pretty painful the more you know about how things were and what was lost, the more painful it is to, to see where we're at now, really. And knowing that we're not going to get back to the 1970s, I mean, we were already in a decline, and yet there was so much more life than there is now. There's no going back, at least not in our lifetime, or it seems in the lifetime of many generations to come. Right. Yeah. So it's hard. And I feel like a lot of people who kind of understand what was lost, they react to it with a real sense of grief, you know, and 
try to cope with it any way that they can. And I honestly believe that it's an explanation for some of the more heartbreaking things that our, our people struggle with in terms of like um, substance abuse or depression and suicide and things like that. I think it's all tied directly to the loss of the ecosystem and the way of life that it supported. I feel like that's something that a lot of our fishermen experience firsthand, you know, men who are my age who went out fishing with their fathers as children and grew up with that, thinking that that was going to be their way of life and that was going to be their profession as it has been for that, you know, in, in family lines for thousands and thousands of years are now left with this situation where, you know, they go out on the water and what they see is like a dying Salish Sea that they're witnessing it firsthand, you know, right there up close and personal. And I, I feel like it's really hard on our fishermen who work in that and still try to earn a living from it, but also have, you know, these deep connections to the water and that way of life. And it's just gone, you know, I mean, it's banishing. Just going back to Tokatai, can you imagine a day that she's released? Do you think that day's going to come? I actually, <laughs> I can't imagine it. I imagine it all the time. Every day, I think, you know, how cool it would be to see her reunite with her pod. And I have this story while I was doing my research. I had a visit from a friend who asked me to tell her about my project. And so I told her all about it and she'd never heard of Tokatai before. And then after I'd finished telling her, she was just so horrified. It was kind of a lot to get all at once, right? I think I was bottling it all up and I just had to tell somebody. We were sunbathing at the river and she looked up at me and she said, we need to rent a helicopter with a whale sling and go in the dark of night and airlift her back into the ocean. And I, and I was like, yes. So I've had fantasies of doing that and then escorting her on a sailboat through the Panama Canal and up the North American coast and back to the Salish Sea, you know, just kind of hanging out there until her pod hears her calling. Well, thank you. I'm so grateful that you found Tokatai and Tokatai found you. And she's got a writer out there in the world who's adding to the campaign to free her. So thanks for coming on the show. And I wish you all the best with your future writings. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on to talk about my work and to share a little bit more about Toki's story. You can learn more about the author at rainapriest.com. Sentient Planet is brought to you by co-creators Susan Woodward and Tiffany Owens. Susan is your host and content sorceress, and I'm Tiffany, your editor and post-production ninja. Social media by Bridget MacArthur. Art direction by Janet Grimwade. Original logo by Vonda Whitley. Photograph by Mark Stoop. Intro music, The Spaces Between by Scott Buckley. Interstitial music, Endeavor by Stellar Drone. Sentient Planet is produced in the Krusty Palace studio from an undisclosed location on the traditional homeland of the Nisqually tribe in the Great Pacific Northwest. To join the campaigns to free Tokatai and extend legal rights to the Salish Sea, please visit our website at sentientplanetpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. 
and love to all beings, great and small.